just want to give a quick disclaimer here. Uh, so the views today expressed in this episode are those of Captain Michelle Gillec and do not represent those of the United States Air Force or the Department of Defense. Now I've got that covered, tell you a little bit about Michelle. Michelle is an embedded doctor of physical therapy within the first fighter wing at Langley Air Force Base in Virginia. Michelle developed one of the first ever unique active duty embedded DPT positions within the United States Air Force to offer services specifically to fighter pilots within their own squadrons on the flight line. She has been working closely with Air Combat Command in developing an optimized human weapon system for fighter pilots and works closely with contract personnel including athletics trainers, strength coaches and licensed massage therapists. Michelle specializes in treating high G-induced spine injuries in fighter pilots and is currently developing research projects to reduce the chance of high G injuries sustained in F-22s and other fighter aircraft. Michelle graduated from the University of New Mexico School of Medicine with her Doctor of Physical Therapy in 2017 and completed an orthopedic residency in 2019 and became a board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist in 2020. She's conducted award-winning research in spine and shoulder and has been using her special skills for the United States Air Force since 2018 when she became a commissioned officer. Good afternoon, Michelle, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. No problem. Thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule. Um, obviously, I've heard you on a couple of other podcasts, and I thought you'd be a great guest to come on. Just very, very unique insight as well with the work you're doing currently within the Air Force as well. What I was going to say, Michelle, as well, is like, you know, within the tactical space, it's, it's very unique um, requirements from the athletes there. And I think with regards to the the fire pilots you're working with it's very much a niche within a niche as well so i think you yeah, have some absolutely. interesting insights for everyone here <laughs> yeah, so obviously michelle me and you have had the chance to chat a little bit off air and get to know each other but for anyone who hasn't come across you and the work you're currently doing can you just give us a little bit of background you know where your career started out and you know where you're currently at now yeah so um, my name is michelle Ulick. as people know i'm a doctor in physical therapy i'm an active duty captain in the united states air force i did an orthopedic residency and I'm a board certified orthopedic specialist or OCS. Uh, in my current job, I'm an embedded uh, PT, treating primarily high, high G induced spine injury mm -hmm. in fighter pilots. Uh, before I started in the Air Force, I did about two years of travel therapy. So I did uh, a few contracts in outpatient ortho, and then I also did a home health contract as well. And then as I was transitioning into the Air Force, um, background wise, I originally grew up in the Minneapolis area in Minnesota, USA. I did my undergraduate degree in exercise physiology, uh, from Fort Lewis college in Colorado, uh, the United States. And I got my doctorate from the university of New Mexico school of medicine. I got my start in PT. I, I was 14 years old and I suffered some serious shoulder injuries on my left shoulder. I ended up needing two reconstructive surgeries for my left shoulder. I had just repeated posterior dislocations over and over and over again. Uh, I had a grade five uh, AC, or ACG or ACJ, uh, acromiocolocular joint complex tear. Wow. So I tore every single ligament in the entire shoulder girdle except for the SC joint and the arch ligament. So even the ones that they say are indestructible like the coracohumeral ligament yeah. tore through that somehow. Uh, I needed a lot of PT to kind of get back and recover from that. And that's where I got a lot of the inspiration for my career. I think a lot of people kind of get into this, this career from injuries they've had. Uh, but everything now, after those two surgeries and a lot of PT, 
I'm able to do everything with my left hand. And that's actually my dominant hand as well. Um, I'm able to withstand military training, push-ups, all those standards. And I strive to be better than the standard as well. And I couldn't have done any of that without the proper PT. So mm -hmm. here we are. Yeah. That, that's impressive. As far as shoulder injuries go, that is something yeah. special. Do you mind if I was a lot. how did you manage that? I don't really know. So uh, I remember I was 14. I put on a backpack and I felt something weird. And then it just got worse and worse and became more and more unstable. And it started just like kind of popping out whenever I could sublux my shoulder anytime I wanted to. Uh, eventually, when I was able to get MRIs and get the surgeries, they think it was partially a birth defect because okay. all of the posterior labrum was just straight missing. And so they found it off the edge of the glenoid. So he put it back. And so now I have quite a bit of hardware in there as well. But I think it was partially, I was just kind of made wrong. And then sports aggravated the condition to where it was just horrifically lax and unstable. Mm -hmm. And I tell you for sports, were you what, overhead athletes then? I was doing uh, competitive martial arts and Taekwondo. And then I was uh, a soccer keeper, which was okay. a lot of overhead too, yeah. so. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, you got drawn into to PT, you went to PT school and stuff. And then you're saying you were doing travel therapy. Was that what you were doing straight out of the gate as soon as you got out of school? Yes, so I graduated, it would have been in May of 2017 is when I graduated PT school. I started my first travel contract in July of that year because I knew I wanted to go into the military for PT. It's a pretty lengthy process. And so it takes one to two years for that application to go through. Wow. So I didn't want to start a permanent position and then immediately quit if I was picked for the Air Force. So yeah, I did travel PT straight out of the gate, which I know isn't what everybody does, mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. So if people have questions about that, I'm happy to answer questions about travel as well. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. And where did the, uh, where did the interest come for you to join the military? Is that something you had as you were growing up or is it you decided in PT school? Yeah, I, I come from a big military family, mostly uh, the U.S. Navy. Um, I've always wanted to kind of bring what I have to the table in my profession to serve a bigger purpose, make a larger impact possibly than the norm. Um, I wanted to be a part of that piece of legacy, kind of leave my mark, uh, as well as honor those close to me who've lost their lives while serving. If you hear jet noise, I live close to the jets. Um, like I said before, it's a very competitive process to get picked as a PT in the military. And that's kind of across the board, across all the branches in the US. Um, so it takes a lot of time and a lot of dedication to get even that far, just to get through the application processes. So. If that's something anybody's looking into doing, I'm happy to help with that process. It's really confusing and lengthy. I did start the process with the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Army as well, but I wanted to go with the Air Force. Um, but regardless of the branches, all of the processes are pretty much the same. <laughs> and I mean, obviously you're saying start a process with Navy and U.S. Army as well there. What was it then that made you finally decide you want to go down and work with the Air Force? So I think my, my top choice was probably Navy just because I come from a big Navy family. Mm -hmm. um, but as I was going through the process, some of them were in different stages of the application and I just wanted to get started. And so I do like the Air Force and actually 10 years ago now, gosh, so long ago, I was a contractor with the Air Force as well. So I have a little bit of uh, familiarity with the Air Force already. And so they picked me up soon 
and I wanted to go with them. And so it seems like a good choice. And I've, I've been pretty happy with it too. It sounds like an awesome position you've got over there. And I mean, it's yeah. such a niche market you're working there within the fighter squadron. What does, what does a typical day look like for you as a PT in fighter squadron? Sure. Uh, first off, I have to say that my position, like you've said, is a very niche position. Uh, my position as a PT in the Air Force is extremely unique. I'm definitely an exception to the rule. Almost all military PTs will work in a clinic with a medical group or hospital, um, but I'm an exception in that I'm embedded within the fighter squadrons, like you've said, in a fighter wing. Uh, I essentially created the position I'm in, and I'm one of the first ever in the Air Force to do what I do in the way that I did it. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was creating this, I saw a need for attached or embedded care, and uh, I was willing to put in the work to make that a reality. I had a lot of support from the line side. Definitely couldn't have done it all by myself, but I'm very humbled and thankful to have the position I have in what I do. Um, for my day-to-day, -day, I generally see about eight patients a day. Um, I also do a lot of admin stuff on the side, which I won't get into today, uh, but anywhere between you know eight, sometimes 10 patients, and they're all fighter pilots. Uh, I treat almost exclusively the spine in this population. And most of my treatments are roughly 45 to 60 minutes long. I always prescribe some sort of exercise program, um, but my expectation is that my patients do most of that on their own time, unless they have questions or they want me to walk through that with them. Uh, I expect them to do that on their own. And then the time that it's, they spend with me is hands-on manual therapy or things like dry needling, any of those other modalities that they need mm -hmm. from me specifically. So it's generally kind of my day-to-day -day is what I'm doing with them. And uh, I'm right there on the flight line with them. So I can see them before or after flights or both if needed. I try to be pretty much available all the time. That's really cool. And I mean, yeah. you know, I really want to unpack some of that stuff with regards to your actual treatments and stuff and the, the, the injuries you're working with. But just to pull it back briefly there, you're talking about, you know, creating this position for yourself as well. How did that even come about, Michelle? You know, where did you see like, right, there's a need for this and how did you get the ball rolling with all that? Yeah, I was, I was doing what most military PTs do and you're just kind of in the clinic, seeing your patients as they come in. And I remember about two and a half years ago, I was covering for another PT actually. And there was a fighter pilot put on this other PT schedule and she had back pain. And she was at that point, she was currently DNIF. So DNIF is, D-N-I-F, that in, stands for duty not including flight, which means that they're so hurt or broken or sick that they can't fly. And that's mm -hmm. a big problem because they can't do their primary job. So she was denied from back pain. And she was just lamenting to me about how difficult it was to keep these appointments because their schedule is so high tempo and it's always changing flights change, weather patterns change, flights get canceled, or they have to do more because of weather or whatever happens. And she was really frustrated. She uh, was just saying that she had to cancel appointments all the time. What was she supposed to do? How was she supposed to get better? And she was like, hey, you know what would be really cool? It's if someone came to the squadron. I was like, you know what? That's a really, really good idea. And uh, that was kind of day one of this huge, thought that I had that it just exploded into the job I have today, which is awesome. Um, but she was my very first inspiration. 
And then probably about a month later, I had another fighter pilot go on my schedule. Same kind of issues. He had a neck issue and just the same frustrations that they were feeling. So I eventually um, started some, you know, good networking with these people and networking uh, with some more of the pilots on the line side and getting to know what's really going on over there, getting to know more of the pilots, more of the facilities, what they're able to do, how we could network this. And that's when I started really getting into the nitty gritty of what, what kind of paperwork do I need to do to make this kind of thing happen? How could I possibly get like a satellite clinic going over here? Who's going to man it? How's it going to work? Can I justify the time? And over the course of roughly six to eight months, we figured it out and I was able to justify my time. And uh, now it's this huge, awesome thing that is just getting bigger and growing across the Air Force and embedded care is becoming more and more of a thing across the, all the military branches which is awesome. I'm a huge advocate for it. I think mm -hmm. it's absolutely necessary and not just necessarily in fighter squadrons, but any of those high ops tempo squadrons that are considered vulnerable, you know, those people that are more prone to injury, even people who are lifting heavy things, firefighters, um, special warfare, those guys, they all need it too. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome here. And just, you know, to, recognize a need there and to, to see a fruit to fruition get that up and off the ground Matt. and how, how's yeah. the how's the clinical department that you're like in now how's that grown over the time it has grown a lot so at the same time that i was starting my clinic just independently um there were some larger kind of air force wide programs that were starting to be in the very infancy of development that i was able to kind of help progress or help grow, um, which we call OHWS, which is optimizing the human weapon system. And that is a huge Air Force wide push to essentially ensure that fighter pilots get kind of the same treatment or services as like elite athletes mm -hmm. or Olympic level athletes. Um, because a lot of the strain that they have to undergo in the jet and under high G forces, which we will definitely talk about, I'm sure, um, is really, really exhausting. And they need to maintain a really high level of fitness to be able to withstand high G forces so they can fly optimally under out of literally out of this world stressors and forces. So I've been able to be a huge part of the OHWS initiative as a PT. And so I'm also working with strength coaches, massage therapists, athletic trainers, and hopefully a sports psychologist eventually and we also have some nutritionists on board too and so this little tiny thing that i started is now massive mm -hmm. and i can't take nearly even like a fraction of the credit for the huge project of ohws but i've been able to be a big part of the expansion of it at my base and air force wide yeah, that's awesome that's awesome yeah. here and just to see how that's grown over time and then you know continue to grow and uh, develop as well is pretty cool now yeah. obviously a lot, of, a lot of people, like I'm mid-30s now, and a lot of guys grew up watching Top Gun and like, oh, that's awesome to do that job yeah. and stuff. So everyone's been inspired by that. But you touched upon it briefly there about some of the stressors. As cool as flying is, what is the demands on the human body of these guys, you know, going out all the time? Yeah, it is. It is rough. So Top Gun makes it look like super fun. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't talk at all about the high G-forces and the gear and then the jet itself and what's happening inside the cockpit 
when they're doing all those cool twisty turny accelerating turns and things so as far as injuries i'm seeing in the fighter pilots that i treat and if you look into the research it's all very consistent across the board of what already exists uh, the most common injuries i'm seeing in fighter pilots are compression injuries of discs so whether that be a disc bulge uh, disc herniation disc desiccation or just good old degenerative disc disease that's by far what i'm seeing the most and by far what i'm treating uh, in both cervical and lumbar spine. Mm -hmm. um, so just like it's put out there in the literature, uh, the most common areas of injury are gonna be C5-6, C6-7, and L4-5, L5-S1. Generally, when it comes to a disc bulge or herniation that's affecting a, a spinal nerve root, it's gonna be those one-sided radiculopathies. Generally sciatic just because of the L5-S1. Um, and the most common is the lower quarter. So but also in the upper quarter, I'm seeing a mix of kind of neural compression injuries. Sometimes it's from the spine or the nerve root. Sometimes it can be brachial plexus mm -hmm. or simply those nerve impingements or entrapments from tight areas kind of up in here, whether that be a scalene issue, clavicle, pec minor, first rib, um, seeing a lot of those. Mostly that's going to be from, yes, G-force, but also from the LPU, which is the life preserver unit, which is kind of that horseshoe that's kind of coming around. You see that if you Google, you know, pilot gear, or even if you watch Top Gun, you'll see. And then with the G-force, it pushes down here. It can cause a lot of compression. Um, so a big part of my job is to be just an absolute expert in teasing out the differences in the referral patterns of nerve roots, trigger points, uh, specific peripheral nerves um, or specific muscle patterns, dermatomes, myotomes, knowing exactly where each of these areas refer and knowing um, where those muscle actions and attachments are just so that I can very accurately diagnose these injuries without the use of imaging or a lot of neural testing. Then I can make it quicker, quicker recovery, and then there's less delay getting them back up in the jet. Uh, a lot of the other common injuries I see besides disc stuff is going to be more the thoracic spine taking the hit. So mm -hmm. a lot of thoracic kyphosis, increased kyphosis or stiffness, um, that forward neck posture, a lot of upper trap strains, which the guys call stingers. Because if you're looking back and you get like a stretch here really quick, they call them a stinger. Um, upper cross syndrome is a big one. So really dominant upper traps and a lot of muscle imbalances up there. So what happens up there, G-forces. So mm -hmm. there's a lot you can study with G-force. I'll try to make it as simple as possible. So G-force is the force of gravity, right? So that's just think of it as how much you weigh on normal land, just sitting there, standing there on that, that land. You're at one G. So if you're like a 200 pound or like a 90 kilogram person, you weigh 90 kilos at one G. Yeah. So we're all sitting around earth, happy at one G, a really intense roller coaster. It can get up to a couple of G's that like pressure you feel when you're like down like this and you're coming back up. That's that sense of acceleration or an increased G load. Mm -hmm. That's nothing compared to what fighter pilots feel when they're under high G in a high performance aircraft. So I think as some of these like really advanced roller coasters, the highest you'll get is like four or five Gs for a couple of seconds. Mm -hmm. So 
all G-forces, so increased G-load or G-forces is all kind of a calculation from maneuvers that involve acceleration. And that will increase your G-load. Um, so I'm specifically talking about GZ positive forces. That's that axial compression I call it like the squish force. When you're squishing and you have forces from the top of your head squishing you down, that's a GZ positive force. So what can happen if you're flying in like high performance fighter aircraft, you can get up to around nine Gs. And you're not gonna hold that forever. It'll be anywhere from you know, several seconds to holding six Gs for 30 seconds to a minute, depending on whatever you're doing. But you can get up to about nine Gs. So nine times the force of gravity. So if you're that 90 kilogram person, all of a sudden you're gonna be weighing 1800 pounds or like 810 kilos at nine Gs. That's how much you weigh all of a sudden. So think about what that weight does to the spine and the spinal discs. And that's what's happening. And that's why I treat so much of disc injuries. So you have to think a little bit too, when you're thinking about the compression on the spine, the position, you have to think about also the position that the spine is stuck in under these forces. So fighter pilots are in the cockpit, they're sitting, we, uh, if you study spine, you know that sitting isn't the greatest thing you can do for lower back injury. They also have the helmet they're wearing and there is uh, usually a harness. Sometimes there's a parachute, depending what kind of jet you're flying. And that will change kind of how the weight is distributed. And especially if you're flying at night with night vision goggles, things like that, that make it even worse. So the helmet is generally kind of weighted more in the front so the helmet will pull your head forward and those life preserver units that I talked about before, they'll also pull your shoulders forward. So, you know, an average head weighs around, you know, 11 pounds or like five kilograms, um, but add that forward head position by let's say two inches or like five centimeters. And that'll increase the weight of your head at one G to around like 42 pounds or 19, 20 kilos. And then add nine G's mm -hmm. and suddenly your head, that forward head position, you weigh like 330 pounds or 150 kilos, yeah. which is insane. Yeah. So, and then the amount of weight, that's just for the neck. So the amount of weight is even greater when it comes to the lumbar spine, because not only do you have all this stuff from your neck, from your head and from the gear, you also have you know, half your body weight, or I think it's roughly 33%. 66% of your body weight on your lower back. So if you're like a 90 kilo person, then suddenly you have nine G's and suddenly you have like 1300 pounds or like 600 kilos of weight on your lumbar spine. Yeah. And that there's sometimes those G forces come on suddenly and sometimes they come on gradually, but either way, when you get up to that high weight, it's a lot of weight. When you get to like a nine G force and you think of it as breaking it down in pounds per square inch or centimeter um, or kilo per centimeter, you're looking at you know, roughly a thousand pounds per square inch or 450 uh, kilos per centimeter, which is craziness. Yeah. And so that's the reason that I see so many disc injuries is because of the just crazy amounts of force and weight that's on these little discs. And I've done a lot of 
uh, extra research into spinal anatomy, spine physiology, and just looking at really intensely the anatomy of discs, uh, more so than what I ever got in my doctorate and anything in my residency or any of that work. And so you when you look at anatomy of a disc, you have the annulus fibrosis, you have the nucleus pulposus, um, but you can think of the spine actually as like a hydraulic system almost. Um, it has a very high inherent pressure already. Mm -hmm. And so each disc has a slightly different static pressure just based on size and where it is in the spine. Um, but you can think of each of those discs almost like a blown up tire, like tire on your car. They all have a PSI, what we call it in the United States, um, is that tire pressure. But a standard tire pressure, disc pressure is roughly four to five times that of a standard tire pressure. And you think about high how high pressure your tires are in your car. The disc is much, much, much more than that. So it's already a very high pressure system. And you think about putting you know, 500 kilos on that high pressure system, that's when you see disc herniation. So it, it takes an enormous amount of pressure to herniate a disc. And those weaker areas of the disc or the, the um, annulus fibrosis in those areas that the posterior longitudinal ligament isn't, we know that those are the areas that discs generally herniate. Um, that high pressure is even more to overcome the annulus, even in those weaker areas, and then also overcome intra-abdominal pressure that you get just from transverse abs and things like that. So that's what I almost exclusively see as a primary injury in fighter pilots of high performance aircraft. Um, some of those other injuries that I mentioned before that I see more commonly, um, those upper cross syndrome, increased thoracic kyphosis and stiffness, and those upper trap strains. And that's all generally a result of increased Gs, just kind of a secondary effect of load on the spine. Because when you're in that forward position, because everything's pulling you forward, helmet, LPUs, that kyphosis of the thoracic spine becomes exaggerated and that forward head position becomes exaggerated and those other muscle groups become dominant in attempts to stabilize, which we know isn't the right thing to do to increase stability in the cervical spine. And that's kind of where the rehab and prehab process comes into play in what I do. That's cool. That's, that's great insight for everyone listening in here, Michelle, just to see just the, the true, true demands our guys are facing, you know, up in the, up in the air. Um, obviously, you talked a lot about lumbar and stuff there, and you said about obviously with cervical, our head is you know around about eleven pounds, and then moving mm -hmm. forward a few inches, that just blows up massively. You said yeah. about obviously helmets as well for the guys who got a lot of kit on their head. How much yes. do helmets actually win? How much is that having an impact on? There are several pounds, uh, and some of the more advanced helmets that are coming out, you know, around the world and militaries all over the world, are having more advanced um, imaging availability and. Um, Kind of a lot more of the technology is now becoming more in the helmet versus in the aircraft itself mm -hmm. and so they're getting heavier and heavier and i think there are some not necessarily laws but i think there are some guidelines that i don't know a lot about but i know there are some guidelines as far as the amount of weight you're allowed to put into a helmet before it becomes just a massive issue so there there's several pounds and then if you attach any kind of night vision goggles to that it's another couple of pounds and that's all right here in the front of the head pulling yeah. you forward and down yeah, yeah. Okay, so obviously with your your rehab and your pre, uh, prehab strategies as well, what, what sort of stuff have you been implementing for these guys to actually try and either 
reduce these outcomes or you know get the guys back up in the air as quick as you can yeah uh so first and foremost my rehab or prehab process is always evidence-based mm-hmm. uh i do a combination of exercise and manual therapy and then with modalities um i don't like to overcomplicate things um if it moves it but it shouldn't then strengthen it if it doesn't move but it should then mobilize or stretch it so the emphasis for fighter pilots specifically is going to be always decompression because we just talked so much about compressive forces with G and then stabilization. Almost always they need those two things. So even though doing traction, if you look at attraction in the literature, as far as evidence-based, it has weak to moderate evidence, depending on the specifics and which study and what part of the spine you're looking at for, but spinal decompression is much more relevantly used in this population. Um, flying intermittently with those nine G's for an hour can acutely compress some of your spinal discs by roughly 50%. And that's not going to stay that way. It's going to kind of bounce back a little bit, but those pressures over time repeatedly for years will decrease your ability to kind of bounce back or let those discs fill up with water again, Mm -hmm. which is degenerative disc disease, the inability to fill it up with water again and kind of bounce back from those. So prehab is always focused at the spine, first and foremost. Prehab for um, these kinds of injuries that I'm seeing are gonna be stabilizing the spine. So cervical and lumbar spine primarily, and then mobilization of the thoracics generally, just because the thoracics are so good at taking load and kind of bending and being flexible, but they're gonna lose that flexibility with time um, just because of those postures and because of the weight. So I'm looking at strengthening specifically deep neck flexors, deep neck extensors, and then also adding strengthening with an element. And this is in terms of cervical spine with some axial rotation. So the movement that causes probably the most cervical spine injuries is what we call check six position. So check six in military terms, checking your six is checking your back. So an axial or check six position is going to be turning and looking back. So it's an axial rotation with an extension, which is one of the most vulnerable positions for the cervical spine in terms of um, vulnerability for getting an injury. Mm -hmm. Um, So working through those positions and also strengthening necks, flexors and extensors, and then kind of getting comfortable in those positions with some rotation is probably the most important thing I do for cervical spine injury prevention. Um, because I see so much of upper cross syndrome, I want to make sure that those other areas in the upper quarter are balanced out. And so making sure that middle traps, lower traps, serratus interior, again, those deep neck flusters, extensors, and even sometimes the rotator cuff get balanced out with those powerhouse muscles, those superficial back muscles, and the upper quarter muscles like traps, upper traps, lats, deltoids, pecs the ones that really pull forward and downwardly rotate scapula. Um, Because out of those 17 muscles that are connected back there in the scapula, only three of them do that healthy upward rotation and the rest is pulling you down and forward. And a lot of them are strong internal rotators like lats and and, uh, pecs. So sometimes even SCM and things like that need to get stretched, pecs need to get stretched, upper traps need to get stretched. Levator scap is another one that I see that gets really, really tight. Mm -hmm. Um, For the lumbar spine, Again, for prehab, I'm looking primarily at stabilization. So those primary stabilizers are going to be transverse abdominis and those lumbar multifidi, as well as obliques. 
So the primary focus is gonna be strengthening those muscle groups. Um, and then going back to the enormous amount of pressure that's on those discs under high Gs, working on those abdominal core muscles, especially transverse abs, is gonna help increase your intra-abdominal pressure. And that's gonna help equalize that in to out pressure from that disc and then help with that out to in pressure from the abs and keep things stable. So that's what I'm focusing the most for prehab. If people don't have any injury at all, I'm still gonna make that an emphasis. And like I said before, I expect these guys to kind of do that work on their own or in the gym with the strength coaches, with athletic trainers or myself, if they need me to, to help them with that. The rehab, if they already have an injury, is gonna have a lot of those same principles, but I'm gonna be thinking primarily, assuming it's a disc injury, rehabbing the disc injury. But first I'm gonna to want to try to diagnose it as clearly as I can. How bad is it? Is it radiating symptoms? Is there peripheralization? Is it a nerve or is it just muscle stuff? If it's a nerve, you know, which one is it? Is there a lot of muscle guarding? Is there a lot of spasming? And I like, how new is it? Did this just happen? Do they need medications? Do they need muscle relaxers? Do they need anything that may cause a deniff because they can't fly because it hurts so bad or they can't um, do the job? So what I do, I kind of have a mix of different techniques that I use for rehabbing a disc injury. So I use a combination of McKenzie, McGill, Sarman techniques, and then I utilize principles of neural, neural dynamics, um, tissue healing, and then postural positioning to kind of create my rehab plan. So I use a mix of all those things, depending on where they're at with their injury and what's going on. So I'm looking at extension biased treatments, primarily um, stabilizations, and then looking at stiffness versus tightness, mobilizing nerves, um, timing the different parts of rehab with the timelines of what we know about tissue healing. Mm -hmm. And there's not a very, very good consensus on how long it takes to heal like an annulus fibrosis, if at all, does it heal? I've read, well, I'd say almost everything there is that I could find online in the past couple of years about how to heal annulus fibrosis or how long it takes. And it's different for everyone. Part of it's genetic, part of it we just don't know very well. Um, some people say, if at all, it's going to take years. And so just through seeing what I've been seeing months to years, um, but people generally feel much better within a month or two. Mm -hmm. um, and then another big part of the rehab is going to be avoiding those bad postures that we know worsen disc injuries, like prolonged sitting, forward flexion, uh, a lot of bending forward, especially first thing in the morning because those discs are going to be most full in the morning. So really avoiding tying your shoes first thing in the morning or loading the dishwasher right when you get up, kind of giving your body some time to let that water make its way out of those discs right first thing in the morning. So if it's a really, really fresh disc injury, like it just happened an hour ago, and I've seen some of these before, it's going to take a little bit of time for that to calm down. And this is just what I've learned more from practice is that I can't do a whole lot of treatment in that first you know, couple of days after a really bad disc injury, because it's just too painful. Likely if it's bad, they're going to have radiating symptoms. Um, they're going to have you know, pain, pain, tingling, numbness, uh, cold or heat in a leg or an arm. This is usually low back injuries that I'm seeing this. So the very beginning 
of like a fresh bad disc injury is going to be um, just getting the pain down. Mm -hmm. So rest, anti-inflammatories, heat. So you sometimes some really light traction. They're on like heavy muscle relaxers. I won't do that though because they're just going to be too too bendy on muscle relaxers. And uh, generally they're going to be really spasmy and painful. Those QL muscles are going to be spasming almost always if it's a lumbar injury. Um, so sometimes the muscle relaxer can help with that. Um, and then once those have calmed down a little bit and some of that um, inflammation on the nerve root is less um, because discs don't have a blood supply, they don't have a nerve supply. So almost all the pain people are gonna be feeling is from the nerve root compression mm -hmm. from the muscle spasming. So once that is calmed down, that's when I start using a little bit of McKenzie or finding directional preference. Um, neurodynamic glides, especially with sciatic or femoral nerve, Generally, a little bit of strengthening. I don't want to cause any pain or any kind of peripheralization. And then just allowing the, the spine some time to heal by offloading those lumbar discs with certain positioning. So using a lumbar support, things like that, um, avoiding sitting, avoiding those bending forwards. So it's kind of how I go through rehab and prehab and kind of recycling those uh, techniques as they get better and as things change, because it's constantly changing. You know, there's textbook versions of all this stuff, but I try to treat everyone super individually just because everyone's just a tiny bit different. It's interesting as well. Like it's the, the hear that treatment pathway and like, you know, all your considerations as well, along with, you know, your lifestyle factors as well for how guys can yeah. adapt and that as well. I was going to ask for the rehab side of things and, you know, strengthen up those important muscle groups with them as well. Do you generally push more for like a volume based approach? Or do you try and chase like maximal strength work within that? Because obviously, the, the, the forces they're going to encounter when they're out on flight will sure. never be able to replicate here on the ground. So it's just right. like, you know, where do you go with it typically? Yeah, I'm probably, I'm looking more for, um, I've read quite a bit on kind of benefits of both. I'm looking more for endurance than anything else, especially when it comes to those multifidi and abdominal muscles. Mm -hmm. Because yes, I want maximal force, um, but the maximal force kind of comes into a whole different idea, which is um, AGSM. So I'll touch a little bit on what that means. So AGSM is the anti-gravity straining maneuver, um, which is a whole different aspect of high G flight. Um, but that is utilized to keep blood in the heart and in the brain. And so when these guys are up there flying around like Top Gun and everything, and they're flying at you know six, seven, nine Gs. They have a G suit that they wear, which compresses the legs and compresses the abs to kind of push blood up to the head and the heart, but it's not quite enough. And so you need to also do the anti-G straining maneuver, which is a really strong forceful contraction of all or isometric contractions of all the muscles in your legs and your glutes and your abs while you're taking in a maximum breath because you want to have all this air in your lungs all this pressure in your legs to keep the blood up in your head and in your lungs and so really a maximal force strengthening is important for abs and glutes and legs primarily to help with that um, because i won't get super into it um, but if you're doing a lot of cardio work um, or looking for more endurance that promotes more blood flow, right? Mm -hmm. Promotes more creation of capillaries and things like that. But if there's more capillaries, there's going to be more risk of blood being in your legs, right? 
So if you do a lot of strength training in the abs um, with like maximal force training, uh, maximal load training, you're gonna promote more muscle growth or hypertrophy, but not necessarily more capillary growth, which should in theory give you a better straining maneuver or an easier time keeping blood in the upper half of your body. So, but for this primarily, cardio is also an important aspect of having the endurance to do those straining maneuvers under high G because it is really exhausting. So there's a few different factors I'm looking at when I'm looking at strengthening specific things for like lumbar spine. So I'm keeping that in mind because I know they need that, but I'm also keeping endurance in mind because I know they need that too. And so you want to kind of have this fine line. So for lumbar support, I'm generally doing like, let's say I'm doing side planks to kind of hit oblique and hit glute, probably like three sets of 15, something like that. So not like a ton, but also not like three sets of six with kettlebells and weighted things to do more of those uh, hypertrophying kind of loads. So a little bit of both, not a great answer, um, but I'm kind of trying to get kind of in between more so that they can have the endurance for stability because you know, especially with using McGill techniques, mm -hmm. endurance is a big part, holding those static postures and increasing your endurance and holding those um, deep muscles, multifidi and transverse abs is going to help the most with long-term stability in the lumbar spine. Well, that's cool. And yeah, very, very understandable, like your perspective on that, obviously developing the hypertrophy maximum strength, but also having that endurance component there as well for, yeah. why they're up <clears> for long apply periods as well. Um, on that, I was going to say as well, Michelle, like how, how do you guys track in within squadron performance as well? Obviously, I'm guessing there'll be injury rates you're tracking, but whatever things you're tracking. Yeah, so I've actually been working uh, with some of the strength coaches uh, the past couple of weeks. We started trying to track a couple of different things. So kind of on that same note with um, the strength training of the lower extremity, we are starting to track um, isometric mid-thigh pulls mm -hmm. or IMTPs. Um, we're looking at tracking uh, one set of five second max effort and then a repeat three rounds of five seconds on, 10 seconds off to kind of recreate that on and off high G idea. Mm -hmm. And so we're starting to track that with all of our athletes slash pilots. And um, I'm also trying to start tracking as people come into the squadron and then try to hit everybody who's already here. Um, range of motion, I wanted to use, um, not goniometer, the other one, uh, inclinometer. So I want to use inclinometer, especially for range of motion in the spine, cervical spine, thoracics, and then lumbar as well. Lumbar is a little bit harder to track for side to side just because there's very little rotation in the lumbar spine, you know, five to 10 degrees max people are supposed to have. So mostly forward back for lumbar. Um, but I want to start to track range of motion um, kind of as we get them and then as, you know, maybe they'd be leaving or PCSing to a new station or leaving the squadron. So those are things that we're starting to do now um, with assistance from the athletic trainers I have on my staff and the strength coaches, which has been awesome to kind of help track those and try to track everybody down. Um, another thing that I look at primarily for me is those dinner freights or those duty not including flying rates and then return to fly rates. So mm -hmm. if a pilot gets injured too badly, they can't fly, which is the good going to NIF. So my goal is always to keep people on flying status or if they go to NIF, make sure they get back up and get back on flying status or return to fly. So 
it's most important for me, for my tracking and that everybody's still flying and if they get injured to make sure they get back to flying. So that's one of my big things that I track for myself. That's awesome. And I know we tried earlier said like, you know, how, since you start up this, this program, how it's grown considerably and you're sitting there as well about linking in with the, the strength staff as well. And, you know, yeah. tracking those performance metrics and growing that as well. What, what's, what's next, you know, where, where do you see the next development and uh, developmental steps for the program? Yeah, it's, uh, it's grown beyond what I ever thought imagined. Honestly, mm-hmm. it's been a, a really, really awesome progress. So I want to take, you know, what we've learned so far, keep progressing, keep improving, keep learning, um, the military in general, and that's, you know, us Navy, us army, um, air force has been progressively moving towards more embedded or attached care programs. And so I want to continue to advocate for that. Um, I want to make it more mainstream. That's kind of my idea. So I want to make it bigger. I want to make this kind of initiative easier to reproduce. Um, It's really, really difficult to get something like this off the ground and be the first one. Mm -hmm. And I want to make that not so difficult so other people have the support they need and it's not such a new idea. Um, One of the big obstacles I had when I was starting this was that people kept saying, well, this has never been done before. And so I wanna make that not an issue. Like, yes, this has been done before. There is a process in place. We now have it. So I I never wanna stop questioning, never wanna stop innovating, never wanna try to always make things better, make things more efficient, make things make sense. Um, some generals that I talked to probably two years ago now, um, she, she told me, she was like, yeah, what you're doing, it makes sense. You should treat the people where it makes the most sense. And that's kind of how we started the concept of attached care, treat them where it makes the most sense. If it makes the most sense for them to go to a hospital and go to a hospital, but if it doesn't try to keep them in the squadron where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so being the first to start something is always super difficult. Hope to take the strain off of others so that we can employ any kind of embedded or attached care that's needed. That's kind of where I don't have any specifics on where we're headed next or what specifically we're going to make bigger or better or different. Um, that's kind of my hope for all this. No, that's cool. That's cool to hear. And like you say, it's, it's always uh, difficult and it's always challenging to be the first one, you know, to prove the concept. But then yeah. obviously you're you're blazing trail and helping others, you know, come through after you as well and get off the ground a lot quicker as well. Some great info right there, Michelle. And obviously we've set this podcast up to be a resource to students. So for any students who are listening here who may have an interest in going either into the Air Force or understanding a bit more around the demands placed around fighter pilots and G-forces and that, what uh, resources or advice could you give to students? Yeah, so I think my number one favorite thing is this book. This is the best book ever. So this is um, High G Flight by David Newman. This is the most comprehensive amount of information you could get uh, about high G flight, I think, that I've ever seen in any one place. And it doesn't just go into even like MSK issues. It's all the things. So when I talk to you about high G forces or G forces in general, that's just one of many different kinds of G-forces because Mm -hmm. I was talking about GZ positive, but there's also GZ negative, which has its own host of issues, um, which is where blood is coming up to your head instead of the other way around. 
Uh, but there's also GX and GY forces, which are forces coming from the side or coming from the front or the back. And this book has a lot of information on all of those because uh, they're really, really extreme environments. And so this book was definitely one of the best purchases I made as far as educating myself on what is happening in the jet. Um, and then uh, for when I was in my residency, I did a lot, a lot of reading. Um, and then for my OCS, a lot of reading again. So I highly recommend um, American Physical Therapy Association. They have current concept articles on all of the main uh, joint complexes. They break them down by areas of the spine or joint complex with all kind of the kind of synopsis of current research. There's always new research coming out. And then just because I utilize them so much is going to be um, principles of Saruman, McGill, McKenzie. Um, I don't believe that any one person has all the answers or any one technique is the only way to do it. Um, but combining what you believe is the best or the most suitable for that patient or that case, I think you can create a pretty good program combining kind of what you think and then your clinical judgment, what you think would be best for them. So definitely that book. Um, I don't really have any like specific apps, but that book is what I would recommend the most if you're really interested in high G flight um, or PT for it. That's cool. That, that sounds like an awesome resource. I'll stick yeah. all those in our show notes as well so everyone can access them as well, Michelle. Awesome. Um, obviously, it's, it's been awesome chatting, Michelle. You dropped a ton of knowledge. I think I'm going to get carpal tunnel after all these notes have been made. <laughs> Uh, anyone who's listening, you know, wants to reach out, has some more questions for you, like either from career standpoint about actual PT within, um, you know, fire pilots or anything else, you know, what's the best way they can do that? Yeah, I have, um, I have a LinkedIn, I have a Facebook, I have an Instagram. Um, you can send me a message on any one of those things. Um, I'll try to be more consistently checking all of those. Um, my Gmail is honestly probably the easiest way you can reach me, um, which is my last name and then my first name at Gmail. And I'm happy to take any messages from anybody who has questions about you know, Air Force or even the process of becoming a PT in the military, um, high G performance, um, rehab, prehab for, for fighter pilots has kind of become my niche, kind of my specialty. And I'm, I'm always learning. And so I love to learn from, from others as well. So if people have things that they want to contribute to, I'm really happy to take in that info as well. That's cool. That's cool. Honestly, uh, once again, Michelle, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was great.